It is good to be with you all again, and uh, it's always a blessing to visit Southwest Harbor. And uh, it's good to have my wife Beth with me today. It's a joy to have her when she is able to come. She uh, <coughs> she just retired from her nursing job, so um, we are excited about what the Lord has for us in the months and years ahead. So. My desire this morning is that you would see the goodness and the glory of God in every trial and every struggle that you have in life. And we're going to see that from his word this morning. And I need to pray and ask God that he would help us to see that. Lord, uh, we, we come to your word now. We're so thankful for your word. It is alive, it is active, it is precious to us. We don't worship your word, we worship you. But this is an extension of you, Lord. It's your truth. It's your mind. It's your thoughts. It's your plan for us. So now we come to it. And Lord, I need you. I I need you. If you are not uh, helping me today, we're going to only get what humans can produce And we want so much more than that. We want what you can produce through a human vessel. And so would you speak through me today? And Holy Spirit, would you take your living word and would you burn it into the hearts of every person in this room right now? As was just prayed, give each one ears to hear and hearts to respond. And make us more like Jesus, Lord. In his name I pray. Amen. If you have ever been to a cardiologist, you probably know what a stress test is like. Um, They uh, wire you up to a monitor and then put you on this treadmill and they turn up the speed until the monitor reveals the condition of your heart. And all the while you're walking your legs off trying to keep up with the treadmill. And after several sweaty minutes, the treadmill is turned off and the monitor completes its printout. And those results helped the cardiologist tell the true condition of your heart. In a similar manner, God puts all all of his children through stress tests at different times in our lives. And he does not do this to prevent a heart attack, but rather to give us a diagnosis concerning the condition of our faith. There's something about seeing the actual printout of an EKG that keeps us from fooling ourselves about the condition of our physical hearts. And there's something about the results of God's test which forces us to come to grips with our faith. We may be able to fool people at church on Sundays or in our small group prayer meetings. But God's strenuous testing shows our faith for what it is. And how a person responds to these stress tests of life says volumes about the condition of their spiritual hearts. This morning in the Bible, we're going to study what I believe is the greatest spiritual stress test of all time next to Christ hanging on the cross. It happened to a man in the Old Testament, and from his godly life and example, we can learn volumes about... uh, what it means to live by faith. Now, I must tell you, the passage we are about to study is in many ways very disturbing. It has caused me to question God deeply. And it has caused me to examine my love for and allegiance to God in a a deeper way than I ever have before. 
I think it will do the same for many of you as well. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Hebrews, chapter 11. Hebrews 11, and also locate the sermon notes in your bulletin. We're going to be referring to that little half sheet uh, as I go. As many of you know, Hebrews 11 is a discourse on biblical faith. It teaches us how to live by faith from some of the godliest people in the Old Testament. This chapter has been described as the hall of fame for people of faith. People who faced incredible challenges in their lives, and yet they still trusted God. Today, we turn our focus to the last paragraph in this section on the life of Abraham. Please follow as I read um, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, most of you are familiar with the story of Abraham and Sarah and Isaac. Sarah's womb was a barren all through her childbearing years. And then one day when she was 65 years old and Abraham was 75, God came to them and promised they were going to have a son and he would be the father of a great nation with millions of descendants. For 25 years, Abraham and Sarah waited for that child. And sure enough, when Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 90, Isaac was born. We can all imagine how precious this long-awaited son must have been to them. You know they loved Isaac as much as any of us have ever loved any of our children. It is this love that parents have for their children that makes our passage this morning so graphically powerful and disturbing. What we have here in our Hebrews passage today is a brief overview of a longer story which is outlined in Genesis chapter 22. And I would encourage you, if you have time this next week, to read the Genesis account. I will be referring to it from time to time as we go here. We read here in, in, in Genesis 22, it's clear, and then in, in, in verse 17 here, it's implied that God came to Abraham one day and asked him to offer up his one and only son, as a sacrifice. Now, that phrase in your Bible, only son, is translated in other versions as only begotten son. We know that Abraham had other sons, but the idea here is that Isaac was the only son with Sarah through whom God had promised a great nation. And now God was asking him to kill that one and only son of the promise. I'm curious, if you made a list of the worst possible things that could happen to you, what would be on that list? In my opinion, the death of one of my children is at or near the top of the list. Would all of you parents agree? Um, Some of you here may have already been there. The thought of one of my children dying, even as adult children, literally takes my breath away. And yet, if you think about it, there are different ways to die, aren't there? Um, Some are worse than others. There is dying in your sleep painlessly. If I had to choose the way for one of my children to die, that's the way I would choose. Then there is death by disease or illness. Lots of children today are killed in accidents of one type or another. Um, Many adult children have been killed in wars over the centuries. And then there are those who are kidnapped, tortured, and brutally murdered. 
I've always thought that would be the worst way for my child to die. But now I don't think so. The absolute worst way for my child to die would be for me to kill one of them by plunging a knife into their chest, slitting their throat, letting them bleed out, and then putting them on an altar and setting them on fire as a sacrifice to God. Believe it or not, that is precisely what God is asking Abraham to do in this haunting passage. I confess to you that right now if God asked me to kill my child, I can't imagine doing it. I can't imagine him asking me to do such a thing. But if he did, I don't think I could do it. He would have to give me a dump truck load of grace. Of course, one huge question that arises in this passage is why did God ask Abraham to do such a gruesome thing? We're only given one answer in this text. If you notice, verse 17 says it was to test him. This was the ultimate stress test, was it not? On this particular occasion, the spiritual treadmill was turned up to its absolute highest. And please keep in mind, this testing is not for God's benefit. Being omniscient, God already knew Abraham's character and what he would do. Testing is primarily for our benefit and the benefit of other people. Testing gives us opportunities to reaffirm our love for and trust in God and then helps us to inspire others as they watch our godly respond to the tri- response to the trials in our lives. I have to tell you that I am inspired by Abraham's godly example here. As you might imagine, this true story raises some serious questions about the character of God. No doubt a, a couple of questions were racing through Abraham's mind. Imagine the shock he must have felt when God told him to sacrifice Isaac. Put yourself in his sandals for a moment and try to make any sense out of this command. Imagine the disillusionment. How could a loving, compassionate God impose such a cruel test on one of his children? How could he ask any parent to kill his or her own child? And then there's the whole question about God's promise to Abraham. If you notice in verse 18, God told Abraham that it was through Isaac your promised offspring will come. No doubt another question in Abraham's mind is how could God keep that promise? If I kill Isaac, how how can he become the father of a great nation one day? Shock and disillusionment are common responses when the stress meter is turned up. To high. There are times in the middle of a test when God's ways don't make any sense to us. There are times when we don't have a clue what he is doing. There are times when his tests go totally against human reasoning. Have you noticed? However, rather than doubting God's character in this ultimate stress test, Abraham's response is one of complete trust. He knew that God couldn't lie. He knew that God was a loving God who would keep his promises. So how did Abraham harmonize these conflicting messages from God? How did he reconcile a dead Isaac with God making Isaac the father of a great nation one day? Look at the first part of verse 19. He considered... That God was able even to raise him from the dead. Now that word considered is translated in the NIV as reasoned. Uh, The King James has it as accounting. That word means to think deeply about something. I am so glad that word is there. What it tells me is that biblical faith is not some blind irrational leap. 
faith does not mean that we throw our brains away and never try to reconcile these difficult issues. No, Abraham probably deeply thought about these conflicting messages from God. He probably stayed up all night wrestling with them, and this is how he reconciled them in his own mind. He He reasoned, if God asked me to kill Isaac now, And if Isaac is going to become the father of a great nation one day, then it must be God is going to raise Isaac from the dead. And if you read the full story in Genesis 22, you will see that Abraham fully expected a resurrection. Listen to what he tells his servants in Genesis 22, verse 5. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. So Abraham fully expected to return to Mount Moriah with Isaac alive. And what's so amazing about Abraham's faith at this point is that there there is no precedent for a resurrection. From what we know from Scripture, God had never raised anyone from the dead up to this point in history. And yet Abraham knew that God was the all-powerful creator of the heavens and the earth. And nothing was too difficult for him. And thus, if he had to resurrect Isaac in order to keep his promise, Abraham reasoned that was no problem for God. He's the omnipotent creator. He can do that. We also see in this passage that Abraham fully intended to kill his son. There's no wavering on his part. That's very clear in Genesis 22, but it's also implied in this text. Look at the last part of verse 19. From which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. In other words, as far as Abraham was concerned, the deed was done. He had already given up his son. Genesis 22 tells us that while the knife was still in the air, ready to plunge it into Isaac's body, so when God stopped him there at the last moment with knife in midair, it was the same in Abraham's mind as receiving his son back from the dead, figuratively speaking. As I said earlier, this true story raises some serious questions about the character of God. We've already considered a couple of them. Perhaps the most serious question is this. How could a holy God ask anyone to violate his revealed will in Scripture and sin? He tells us in his word not to murder. And several Old Testament passages, uh, in those passages, human sacrifice are considered by God to be evil, pagan, an abomination, and idolatrous. And yet God commands Abraham to kill his own son. How do you explain that? How do you explain a holy God... Commanding human sacrifice while at the same time hating and condemning human sacrifice in his word. As thinking Christians, we have to wrestle with questions like that. I can assure you critics of the Bible who actually read the Bible are quick to point out this problem with God in this passage. And I can tell you there aren't any easy answers. Allow me to suggest a couple of things that will help us deal with this disturbing passage. First of all, to my knowledge, this is the only time in the entire Bible where God ever commanded such a thing. Oh, it is true that he commanded the Israelites to kill all of their enemies on certain occasions, including women and children, as an act of judgment for their evil. But that's different than this. Nowhere in Scripture do we read that God ever commanded another parent to kill his or her own her own child besides Abraham. And yet, the fact that he does it one time, this one time is a huge problem. 
We must also remember that from the very beginning, God knew the outcome. In fact, God planned the outcome. He, he knew that Isaac was not going to actually die. He knew that he was going to stop Abraham before he actually followed through. So in that sense, a killing did not take place. And God had that planned all along, which vindicates him to some extent. But Abraham did not know that. Abraham was fully expecting to kill his precious son. One of the primary purposes of the chapter, Hebrews 11, is to show us how to live by faith. And so the rest of the time this morning, I want to share with you several practical lessons of faith that you find there on your sermon notes that we learn from from this story of Abraham's life. The first one, number one, living by faith means that we you must sometimes do things that you dislike intensely. Imagine how repulsive it must have been for Abraham to think about killing his own son. Sometimes obedience to God is not pleasant. Have you noticed? At times it goes against what we want to do. Sometimes obedience to God is the most difficult thing you will ever do because you're giving up someone or something that's precious to you. Lesson number two. Living by faith means there will be times when God calls you to do things that don't make any sense, but you keep trusting him anyway. Think about it. I'm convinced the last thing Abraham ever expected to hear from God is sacrifice Isaac. (laughs) I mean, here he had waited 25 years for this promised child, had a miraculous birth at old age. He was told this son was going to be the father of millions in a whole new nation. And now God says to kill him from a human perspective. That is totally absurd, is it not? My friends, God's ways are so far above our ways. Have you noticed? Even though we should try to keep understanding his plans as best we can, there are times when you simply won't be able to. There are times when God doesn't make any sense, but you have to trust him anyway. A person of faith trusts God's character even when God's ways seem crazy. Say that again. A person of faith trusts God's character even when his ways seem crazy. And if you think that's a tough lesson, look at number three. Living by faith means you acknowledge that God has the sovereign right to do with his creatures as he pleases. I mean, we read this story of Abraham and Isaac and our human tendency is to scream, How dare you, God? How dare you take any of your children through such a cruel test? Some of you here this morning may be going through this severe stress test and perhaps you are angrily questioning God's plan for your life or the life of a loved one. And if that is the case, you probably don't want to hear lesson number three. You don't want to hear that God has the sovereign right to do with his creatures as he pleases, but he does. Lots of verses, but a couple that come to mind right after Job had all of his animals and possessions destroyed and all ten of his children were killed. Listen to what he said. And by the way, I think that's the second greatest stress test ever next to Christ hanging on the cross. Uh, Abraham's first because he's having to kill his own son. But Job loses all ten of his children. 
And I have it on your sermon notes. Look at what he says. And you're familiar with it, most of you. Job 1, 21 and 22. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrongdoing. And those are the words of a man who just lost all ten of his children at one time. And right after that amazing statement, you, you know the story. God allowed Satan to take away Job's health. His body was covered with these excruciating sores, at which point Job's wife caved in finally and said, just encouraged him, curse God and die. Be done with God. There's something about severe physical pain that tempts us to get mad at God, isn't there? Do you remember Job's response to his wife? I, again, on your sermon notes, Job 2 verse 10. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. I ask you this morning, shall we receive good from God and not trouble? Shall we receive his blessings and yet not the spiritual stress test he chooses to bring? You see, Abraham realized that Isaac was a precious gift who was on loan to him from God. And thus God has the sovereign right to do with his creatures as he pleases, including the severe test of taking away that child. Job realized that same truth. And that's why he's able to worship God right after all ten of his kids are killed. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And thus we must humbly submit to God's plan. But contrary to what many think today, God's plan is not the plan of this 500-pound gorilla who just wreaks havoc in our lives and doesn't care about any of us. No. It is the plan of a heavenly Father who loves you intensely. And the beauty of God's loving plan for our lives is that this stress tests are always designed for our good and His glory. Always. Always our good and his glory. And he's not going to let you encounter anything that is too great for you to handle by his grace. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Lesson four. Living by faith means you must be willing to relinquish those people, things and activities that are most precious to you if God asks you to. Don't think for a moment. That God doesn't know the things in our lives that we come close to idolizing. He can name every idol in your life. Every precious possession, every relationship that competes with your love for him. God knew that Isaac was the apple of Abraham's eye. And it was now time to reestablish priorities. In Genesis 22, it was time for Abraham to once again reaffirm who was his first love and his greatest treasure in life. And it wasn't Isaac. It's not a mistake that our passage this morning deals with the parent-child relationship. Those of you who are parents, think for a moment about how much you love your children. Do you love God that much? Do you find as much joy and fulfillment in God as you do in your kids? In my opinion, there are many parents today, Christian parents especially, who idolize their kids and worship their families. 
And if not your kids, perhaps it's your spouse or parents or boyfriend or girlfriend or your home or job or your uh, hobby, sports. Uh, it could be some type of sinful addiction. It could be good health and your body that you worship. All of us have people, things and activities in our lives that at times become idols. Things that are precious to us. Things that compete with our love for and allegiance to God. And that's what makes this story about Abraham and Isaac and the altar so convicting. I share with you earlier that this passage has haunted me because it forces me to ask myself, am I willing to sacrifice my children on the altar to God? Not physically, but spiritually and emotionally and figuratively. Or to put it another way, do I love God more than I love my children? To the point that if God chose to take one of my children through death, I would willingly let him or her go without getting angry or bitter towards the Lord. Do I love God more than I love my wife or my friends or my home or my ministry or good health or anything else? Do I hold those people, things and activities loosely so they will not assume a place of importance and allegiance in my life that only God deserves? Hear me well this morning. Living by faith doesn't mean that we have to like it when God chooses to take away someone or something precious to us. No, if God took one of my family members this morning, I would not like it. I would hurt and grieve deeply and be heartbreaking. I I, I would dislike it intensely. If God took away my good health and filled my body with intense pain, I would not like it. I might even question God. But there are different ways to question God. One way is to humbly, sincerely ask, God, what are you doing? Um, This doesn't make any sense to me right now. Please give me wisdom and insight. Please help me to learn the lessons that you want me to learn through this trial. You might even get frustrated with God for a period. Another way people question God is with a clenched fist and anger and say, God, how dare you? I hate your plan for my life. The first way of questioning is appropriate. The second way of questioning is sin. And if you've been here and you've been in that second group of clenched fist and anger, if you're a Christian, that's under the blood. That's not an unpardonable sin. But it is sin. So living by faith doesn't mean that you never question God or that you're always happy with his plans. But it does mean I must be willing to trust God in the hard times. And when he chooses to take away people or things that are precious to me, I will let them go without getting angry or bitter. I may be weeping. I may be hurting. I may be heartbroken. But in the midst of my tears, Lord, I trust you. And I'm able to sing what we sang earlier. It is well with my soul. And it takes a dump truckload of God's grace to get there. It's called faith, and it's precisely this temptation of our family members becoming idols that prompted Jesus to, to say these words in Matthew chapter 10. Again, on your sermon notes, if you look, 10, 37 to 39. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever uh, does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So Jesus says here that if we want to be his followers, we have to love him more than we love our family members. But this Matthew passage prompts an even deeper soul-searching question. It's one thing to ask, do I love God more than I love my father or mother, son or daughter, job, church, hobby, etc.? These verses prompt me to ask, do I love God more than I love myself? Am I, as verse 39 says, willing to lose my life for Christ's sake? Am I continually placing myself on the altar as a living sacrifice to God every day? Saying no to my will and desires when they conflict with God's will and desires. Saying no to me building my little kingdom when it conflicts with me building his magnificent kingdom. There are millions of people today who love themselves more than they love God. It's so evident by the way they talk and think and spend their time and money. But in order to be a Christ follower, we must be willing to give up this self-life. And for those of you who think that this is a cruel and mean and unloving for God to take his children through such a stress test of faith, I remind you that God has been through a similar stress test, but only much worse than one Abraham did. Again, if you look at your sermon notes, the, the verses, Romans 8.32, He, God the Father, who did not spare his own son, Jesus, but gave him up for us all. Isaiah 53.10, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Acts 2.23, then Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. These verses clearly teach that it was God's sovereign will to have his one and only son murdered. When Abraham had that knife in the air ready to plunge it into his son's body, God mercifully stopped him. But when those Roman soldiers had their hammers in the air ready to plunge those huge spikes into his hands and feet, the father did not stop them. And unlike my son or your son or Isaac in this passage, God's one only son was absolutely perfect and sinless and innocent. He in no way deserved such a violent death. But out of love for you and me, it was part of the Heavenly Father's loving plan to kill his one and only perfect son as he bore the weight of your sin and mine so that we could have eternal life. So no one here today should say that God is cruel and unloving to take away something or someone precious from us. Because in a very real way, our sin took away someone very precious to God. Your sins and mine nailed Jesus to the cross. And don't ever say that God doesn't know what you are going through when you suffer or you lose a loved one to death. The story I'd like to close with is from John Stott's book, The Cross of Christ. It's titled The Long Silence. At the end of time, billions of people were scattered on a great plain across God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. But some groups near the front talked heatedly, not just in cringing shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering, snapped a pert young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve and revealed a tattoo number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endured terror, beatings, torture, death. And another group, a Negro boy, lowered his collar. 
What about this, he demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, a pregnant schoolgirl with sullen eyes. Why should I suffer, she murmured. It wasn't my fault that I was raped. Far out across the plain, there were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for every evil and suffering he had permitted in his world. How lucky God was to live in heaven where all was sweetness and light. There were no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of all that man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth their leader, chosen because he or she had suffered the most, a Jew, a Negro, a person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, and a, uh, a woman who had been uh, abused by her husband, a child who had been abandoned, abandoned by his parents. In the center of the plain, they consulted with each other. At last, they were ready to present their case to God. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be their judge, he must endure what they endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth as a man. Let them let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be doubted. Give him a work so difficult that even his family will think him out of his mind when he tries to do it. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges and be tried by a prejudiced jury and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. At the last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. And then let him die a violent death. Let him die so that there can be no doubt that he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went up from the throng of people assembled. And when the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly all of them knew that God had already served his sentence. God the Father knows what it's like to lose a child to violent death. God the Son knows what it's like to suffer injustice, abuse, torture, mistreatment, rejection, and hatred. Run to the triune God with your pain. They know what you are going through more than you will ever know. I began this message talking about stress tests and why we have them. We often wonder why God would take us through trials and stressful times in life. Our passage this morning gives us a couple of reasons. And hopefully you've seen today that the pain in our lives is always designed for our good and his glory. Spiritual stress tests help to reveal our level of faith, help us to trust God more, and allow us to reaffirm that God is our first love and our greatest treasure in life. Stress tests show us the true condition of our spiritual hearts. You see, it's fairly easy to trust God when things are going smoothly in life, right? It's a different story when the heat is turned up and your faith or lack of it is revealed in the hard times of life. Listen to what God said to Abraham in Genesis twenty-two twelve at the end of his test. He says, do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. The reason God tested Abraham like he did 
was to give Abraham an opportunity to show that he feared and loved God more than he loved his precious son Isaac. This test demonstrated Abraham trusted God's perfect plan for his life, even when it involved great pain, loss, and sacrifice. What an example of faith for us all to follow. Amen? So in a sentence, what we are, God's word to us in our passage this morning is this. Spiritual stress tests reveal our level of faith, help us to trust God more, and affirm that God is our first love and greatest treasure in life. Say that again. Spiritual stress tests reveal our level of faith, help us to trust God more, And reaffirm that God is our first love and greatest treasure in life. Oh, Lord, just please help us now. We just confess that our faith is weak. Lord, we go through hard times and it's just so easy for us to get frustrated or angry or fearful or or even angry at you, Lord. We, We don't follow Abraham's example. He's the father of our faith. And, Lord, we need your grace now to trust you more. Oh, for grace to trust you more. Please, oh God. And we're so thankful, Lord Jesus, that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses. And who has been through every trial and temptation that we've been through and yet without sin. Thank you, Jesus. For being our great high priest that we can run to with our pain. And Father, we thank you for giving up your precious son. You did not stop the hammer in the air. But you let them kill your son so that we could be forgiven and have life. Give us grace now as we walk through life to trust you more. In Jesus' name, amen.